Good morning. So I know I say this a lot, don't laugh at me. I'm really fired up about today's message. We were, we were driving here and I started to get into it a little bit and my wife was like, save it for the pulpit. Like, calm down. Um, it's, I wanted to show a clip from Lord of the Rings, but it was a little too long for what I had in mind, but we're going to talk about it. This is, this is going to be a great time, I pray, uh, as we just look at how incredibly cool God is and how mighty and powerful he is. Um, I told a couple people, they asked, they were like, hey, what are you preaching on this week if I want to read? And I, you know, I was in, we're in Revelation. You know, it's Christmas season, right? And I was like, yeah, it's perfect. Trust me. Um, so we're going to be in Revelation, Revelation 17 and 19, if you want to turn there. We'll also be spending some time in Isaiah. We'll hit Ephesians quickly. We'll hit 2 Timothy quickly. But the bulk of where we're going to be starting from, really what's driving this message, is Revelation 17 and Revelation 19. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about that this month, James and I are going to look at Jesus is right? Because we need to know the person and the power of who Christ is. And so this week we're looking at Jesus as King of Kings. And if you will read with me, first in Revelation 17, 14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And then if you flip probably just one page, you might not even have to flip one page, Revelations 19, 11 to 16. Um, the verses won't be on the screen. This is, you know, five or six verses. So write down the reference, go home and read this. But Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and in True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to get really fired up. That's so, oh my goodness, that, just that imagery. But before we begin, let's pray. God, thank you for the power and the promise and the magnitude. I mean, the sheer unimaginable magnitude of your words. Uh, this vision, this image of Christ leading the heaven's armies, thundering on war horses with fire in his eyes. What strength and encouragement and hope we find in these words. So as we prepare to dive into your word and to look at why these passages mean so much, quiet our hearts, still our minds. Let us come before you completely surrendered, not distracted by the thousands of things going on around us, but let this be a time where we offer up ourselves, we offer up our attention as an offering to you. Teach us more about who you are, and teach us more about what that means for us. We love you, and we praise you, and we give you all the glory in all things. Amen. That passage, I mean that passage, he is coming on a white horse with heaven's armies behind him, his eyes like fire. That's incredible, right? And we're talking about Jesus, but humor me for a second. I want to ask you a couple questions about angels. 
how do we portray angels? And, and seriously, like shout out words. How do we portray angels in, you know, Hallmark cards and movies and things like that? Like what are some adjectives that you would describe society's portrayal of angels? I'll get us started with cute, right? We show angels as cute. They're, they're about this big. They're chubby. How else? How do we describe angels? Peaceful. They've got curly permed hair often, right? Little smiles. They're playing a harp kind of slowly and quietly. That's how society portrays angels. But you look at angels in the Bible, and what's the first thing they say almost every single time when they appear to people? Do not be afraid. Calm down. It's okay. Don't be afraid. So in my mind, something that's cute and cuddly playing the harp doesn't have to tell you don't be afraid. But then when you look at how else angels are portrayed, right? Balaam's donkey in the Old Testament stopped because there was a massive towering warrior with a drawn sword in his way. Elisha's servant was freaked out until his eyes were opened and he saw countless war horses and chariots of fire. Angels are not these cute, cuddly, little round balls of dough. Angels are powerful and mighty where they have to say, hey, I'm here, don't be afraid. And so if you have an army of angels that are that powerful, who in the world is going to lead that army? Right? And in Matthew 26, Peter, Matthew 26, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. They come to arrest Jesus. Peter draws out his sword. He's ready to fight. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is not the time for fighting. Don't you understand that if I wanted, if I asked, God would send me legions of angels. Right? He says, that's not what this is about. What Jesus is saying to Peter is, if I wanted this to be a fight, I would make this a fight and I would win. Jesus commands those angel armies. So now, we'll ask a couple questions. You don't need to say anything, but raise your hand, and I'll go first to show you that it's okay. When you hear the name Jesus, what visual pops into mind? When you hear Jesus Christ, you get a picture in your mind. Raise your hand, and this is where I put my hand up. If your first image of Jesus is him teaching, that's where I go to right away, right? Anybody else, you, think, you hear Jesus and you think of Jesus teaching. Maybe raise your hand if you hear Jesus and you think of him, you know, like the paintings, holding a lamb with kind of a peaceful smile on his face. Maybe he's playing with little children. Maybe he's reaching a hand out to the sick woman. Raise your hand if, you, if your first image of Jesus is gentle, peaceful. Yeah? Maybe you go classic art. You think the Last Supper. You think one of those paintings. Maybe you think Jesus on the cross, right? But if we wrote out our top three mental pictures of Jesus, if we wrote out our top five mental pictures of Jesus, how many of us would really put in our top five mental pictures of Jesus, Jesus on a war horse with armies behind him with eyes like fire? I, I know I tend to not think of Jesus that way, but we have to. Because yes, Jesus is gentle. Yes, he teaches. Yes, he heals. Yes, he saves. He is all those things. But as much as he is all those things, he is the almighty conquering king of kings at the head of heaven's armies. I mean, that passage in Revelation, we need to spend more time on that passage in Revelation because I feel like so often Christians are walking around afraid of this world or beaten down by this world or defeated by this world. And when we remember that Jesus, what did 1714 says, say? They make war on the lamb, but the lamb wins. And that's why it's so important for us to keep this image of Jesus in our mind. Yes, I want you to know him as the gentle, tender, merciful, healing, bending down and picking up the child and laying his hand on the woman. I want you to know that Jesus. 
But that Jesus is the same Jesus who comes with a sword and an iron rod to rule the nations. And we can't separate the two. Because when we forget Jesus as that conquering king of kings, first, it makes the battle of this life a lot scarier. I've shared this numerous times. If you don't think you're at war, wake up. Christians are at war. Jesus said to his disciples, I send you out like sheep among wolves. Right? Beware, your enemy the lion prowls around looking for someone to devour. John 10.10, the thief comes to kill and destroy. Galatians devotes a whole section to armor up. Get ready for battle. Gear yourself. We are at war every single day of our lives. And if we go into war thinking it's just me, that makes it scary. Right? If I go into war thinking it's just me against these forces, it's just me against the devil, that's terrifying. And you start to look at the stresses of life. You start to look at the financial difficulties, the relationship difficulties, the health scares. And that builds up and that adds up and that makes it really hard to fight. But when I remember that I'm on the same side as the king of kings at the head of heaven's armies, okay, all right, we can do this because I'm on his side. And second, we need to remember when we look at Jesus as this conquering king of kings and lord of lords, we need to remember what Revelation 17 says that victory is his. The victory is guaranteed. OSU just won, right? They're going to be in the college playoffs. Everybody knows that. They're most likely, Steve, I'm sorry, I apologize. We can, we can have counseling after this if that's okay. <laughs> right? If I told you, if I told you, so OSU, they're in the college playoffs, they're in the first round of games, right? And I told you 100% reality, guaranteed fact, OSU will win the national title. And in the first round of playoffs, at the end of the first quarter, they're down 21 nothing. Are you going to freak out? If you know that they are going to win in the end, do you care that the first quarter didn't go their way? No, not at all, because you're looking at the victory that's coming. Revelation 17, Revelation 19 makes it very clear that Jesus is the conquering king of kings and victory is assured. And we as Christians need to live in that reality and the power of that victory. When you wake up in the morning, you're not facing life alone. You're facing life with the Lord of hosts, the leader of heaven's armies. That's who is with us. And this wasn't just in the New Testament. And we already read some of Isaiah, but I want to go back to Isaiah 9. I want to read more in Isaiah 9, starting in verse 2 through verse 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, it, isn't it funny, Matt and I were just talking before the service, isn't it funny that you, you go through those verses and it's talking about oppression and war and battle, right? And you're like, there's someone coming who will stop all that. There's someone coming who will conquer all that. And you're like, wow, they're getting ready to describe Hulk Hogan like on steroids. And then it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You have to imagine a couple people are like, huh? What? The conqueror is coming as a baby? But that's the beauty of God's plan because his wisdom far exceeds ours. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, this wasn't just New Testament teaching. This was prophesied about Jesus years before he came. And that's why Jesus was such a threat to the established rulers and authorities of that day and age. I mean, do you think about that? Do you, when do we ever associate the word threat with Jesus? But Jesus was a threat to the authorities and the rulers of that day and age. Why? Because he claimed those titles. He claimed the throne. And here's where knowing history, and if there are history teachers out here, bear with me. We're going to do a huge chunk of history in like 60 seconds, okay? But we have to understand the context of Jesus' time to look at why those titles mean so much. I mean, when, when I studied this, I looked at those titles and I was like, wow, my mind was blown. Everybody remember Caesar? You guys heard the name Caesar? Yeah, maybe you know his salad dressing? All right, we got one person who knows the name Caesar. Good, our, our school system is working. So you have Caesar, right? Caesar's in charge, everything's good for Rome. Then you had three guys, they banded together and they killed Caesar. And Rome falls into chaos, into war. So you have these three assassins. Then you had three new guys form a second group to fight those first assassins, and they defeated them. So now you have a new group of three. It was called a triumvirate. You have the second triumvirate. And they divide the Roman Empire up amongst the three of themselves. Things are good. Things start to calm down. But then those three, because they're sinful and fallen and human, they get greedy and they get evil, right? And they start fighting amongst the three of themselves. And so Rome, the Roman Empire, is plunged into bloody, awful violence. I mean, just chaos everywhere. Nobody knows what to do. Their world is ending because the three people in charge of their country are fighting. And of those three, one guy wins. He defeats the other two. His name at the time was Octavian. You probably know him better as Caesar Augustus. Okay, so everybody tracking? Caesar, Caesar dies. Three new guys, Octavian and his buddies kill those three. Octavian kills his buddies. Now Octavian's in charge, right? And Octavian unified the Roman Empire. He brought back the Roman Empire from the brink of destruction. So guess what title was given to him and he took for himself? Savior of the world. Octavian ended years of bloody battle and conflict. So in, in inscriptions on statues, on coins, and poems that historians have found, guess what title Octavian took for himself? Prince of Peace. Caesar Augustus. He took the name Augustus because it implied divine authority. So when the priests of Rome had to pray, the moment Octavian took the title Caesar Augustus, the Roman priests and people had to pray to Caesar. He also gave himself the title Caesar or Imperator Caesar Divi Filius. And I probably butchered that Latin pronunciation, right? Imperator Caesar Divi Filius, which translates to Caesar, son of God. He dubbed himself Prince of Peace, Savior of the World, Son of God. Now along comes a lowly rabbi who claims these titles. The people have to choose. Who gets those titles? Who gets that throne? What about Herod? Anybody else, you read about Herod and the Magi, and Herod's like, hey, you know, tell me where Jesus is. I want to go worship him. But then an angel comes to the Magi and says, no, don't do that. He's got bad intentions, so they don't tell him. How's Herod react? Slaughter every male child under the age of two. 
Anybody else read that and you're like, dude, you need to calm down. That's an extreme reaction. Slaughter every male child under the age of two? And Herod was appointed by the Roman Empire. So isn't there a party? There's a part of me that right naturally wonders, wait a minute, nobody pointed out to the Roman authorities, hey, remember that guy you put in charge of the province over there? He's leading genocide against two-year-old children. Nobody in Rome was like, uh, we should probably do something about this. Jesus' titles directly conflicted with Caesar Augustus' titles. Herod was Idiomean, which comes from the Edomites, which we could really get into some cool stuff because that goes back to Esau and when you look at Esau and Isaac and the promises there. But so Herod, over time, wasn't fully Jewish. He was half Jewish. And the Jews hated him. And Herod knew this. So he did everything he could to identify himself as Jewish and to identify himself as the, the right Jewish ruler. He was appointed king of Judea. So the title that Herod took for himself was king of the Jews. So Jesus is born into a culture and a society in a place where you have people who are pretending to hold the titles that Christ has. That's why he was such a threat to them. Because Jesus came and it was, no, there is one person who gets the throne. There is one person who gets the title. And the people had to choose. That's why when we study Isaiah, it's so beautiful in the context of what's going on. And you understand why. I mean, think about this. Barabbas was a domestic terrorist. Like, if he were alive today, we would label Barabbas a domestic terrorist. He led violent rebellion against the government with the goal of overthrowing it. The leaders wanted a domestic terrorist to be set free instead of a teacher. That tells you something about the authority that Jesus carried with him. That tells you something about the threat that Jesus was to their egos that sat on the throne. And we have the same choice today. Because there are so many people that we have put on the throne we look to so many things for our source of peace, Prince of Peace. There are so many things we look to to bring us that peace. Savior of the world. We have put our leaders in such an exalted position, and it breaks my heart when this happens within the church. But you hear things like, oh, if only so-and-so were in charge, everything would be okay. I've grown up in the church, right? I've shared with you guys. I grew up a pastor's kid. I'm, I'm about as insider church as you can get. I can't tell you how many churches I've been in where you hear things like, oh, if only we still had so-and-so in charge. If only so-and-so were our pastor. If only so-and-so were leading us, then things would be okay. Because it's all about this person. And we have given the throne in our lives to so many people and sources other than the one true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It was talked about in Isaiah for before Jesus' time. It was talked about during Jesus' time. It was talked about after Jesus' time. Listen to these verses in Isaiah 1, 20 to 23. Actually, I'm going to read farther. Sorry. All right. Uh, the next slide will show you Isaiah 20 to 23. Read Isaiah 15 to 23. They're just, they're too good. They're too good to skip. Bear with me. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, 
I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of his power. Who could that describe other than the King of kings and Lord of lords? Verse 19, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Let me reread that. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We do such a disservice when we don't remember him at the head of heaven's armies. I mean, that visual is incredible. When we look at the authority that Jesus carries, this was where I wanted to show a clip from Lord of the Rings, right? I've read the books. I know they're different from the movies. Both are good, okay? Lord of the Rings books, Lord of the Rings movies, enjoy them both. But in the movies, there's a scene. Who's seen, who's seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Okay, good. Yeah, there we go. Double hands. Excellent. So there's a scene in the second one, right? The Battle of Helm's Deep. I won't go into all the Lord of the Rings stuff, but there's a battle going on. Everybody understands the word battle. And the forces defending the fort are about to be overwhelmed. They're about to be overrun. They think all hope is lost. So they mount up for one last charge against the enemy. They they're like, we're going to our death, right? But then there's this beautiful visual. It cuts up to the hill. And Gandalf, good guy, Gandalf appears at the top of the hill, glowing in white, and the sun's coming up behind him, and you see, you see the light of the sun illuminating him, and a horde of soldiers comes riding up behind him, and Gandalf yells out for the king, and they come thundering down the mountainside, and the camera pans out, and it's just more soldiers than you can count, charging into the battle. And the camera pans back to the enemy soldiers, and they were confident and cocky, but as this force thunders towards them, as the weight of the earth shakes with this thundering horde, you see the enemy start to lose confidence. And some of them start to drop their weapons. And Gandalf and the soldiers come plunging into the battle and change the course of everything. That was the first thing I thought of when I read that verse. But magnified times a billion, times infinite. Jesus at the host of heaven's armies, the name above every other name, above all rule and authority in this age and the one to come, leading an army into battle. I mean, imagine with me. Imagine the sound of those war horses as they come thundering in. You know, I picture Jesus yelling for victory and the hosts of heaven's armies echoing the cry and they're charging in, and the forces that stand against the Lamb are overcome and are conquered because Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to see the power that he comes with. The rod of iron. I mean, it says his eyes are like fire. When you picture Jesus, do you picture him with eyes like fire, with a sword coming forth from his mouth to weigh the nations and to rule them? We do such a disservice when we minimize the absolute sheer magnitude of how great and mighty God is. It's this incredible visual, and it's this idea, this idea of Jesus at the head of the army that continues in 2 Timothy. This is 2 Timothy 2, 1-4. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Listen to these two verses. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. There's John. I told John I was doing this. Don't worry. If you're my friend, I'm not going to randomly call on you. John knows. John is a member of our church family who served in the armed forces. To everyone else who did, thank you very much. But I have a question for John about your time. When your commanding officers gave you an order, did they ask your opinion beforehand? Were they like, hey, John, here, here's what we're thinking. What do you think? No. Okay. Was it a suggestion? Like, hey, buddy, we know you're busy. If you have time, if you feel like it, if it's convenient to you, could you do this for me again on your schedule? No? Oh, I've got a totally different idea of what it was like to be in the military. No. Of course not, Sam, you fool. That's not how commanding officers work. So if I'm a soldier of Christ... Who in the world am I to think that this authority is mine? Oh, there that goes. Don't spill. Uh, right? Who am I to think that authority is mine? If Jesus is at the head of heaven's armies, if Jesus is the king of kings, the lord of lords, the leader of the heavenly hosts, if I'm a good soldier of Christ, why in the world do I dare place myself on the throne? A.W. Tozer says in one of his books, I can't remember which one, just read all of A.W. Tozer, they're all good. A.W. Tozer says in one of his books, in every Christian's heart there is a throne and a cross, and until he takes himself off the throne and puts himself on the cross, how is he to live? Because we have put so many people and things in that place of authority in our lives, and I think the number one thing we do that with is our own ego. I know best. Yeah, I see the commands that God gave me in his Bible, but he doesn't know how busy I am. He doesn't know how stressed I am. He doesn't know what my life is like. And we get so entangled in civilian pursuits that we forget we're a soldier in the army of the king of kings. And so that's why I wanted, I know Revelation's not your go-to Christmas book, but as we're looking at who Christ is, you look at these verses and you're like, Man, that's incredible. The power that Christ comes. See, because when I remember, when I read those passages in Revelation, when I read about Jesus coming at the head of the armies, I'm reminded of his proper place in my life. I'm reminded of his authority. I'm reminded of his power. And if I'm reminded of his power, if I remember that Jesus and Jesus alone has the throne, there's no room on me, or there's no room on that chair for me. 
If I've given Jesus the throne, I can't sit there next to him. There's a partnership. You get to decide what we do on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'll take Tuesdays and Thursdays. We'll take the weekend off. No, that's not how it works. Jesus is King of kings. Jesus is Lord of lords. The throne is his and his alone. Authority in our lives is his and his alone. His name will be above every name in this age and the one to come. So yes, like I said at the beginning, we need to know Jesus as gentle, as healer, as merciful, as all those beautiful, wonderful things. But you must, you must know Jesus as the conquering king of kings who rides at the head of the armies, who has a robe dipped in blood and a name written on his thigh that says king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus with a sword, Jesus with the iron rod to rule because he is the be-all, end-all. It's why those titles in Isaiah were such a problem for the rulers of the day. And honestly, I suspect it's why those titles in Isaiah are such a problem for so many of us today. Because we derive our sense of satisfaction and of meaning and of joy and of peace and of security from so many things other than Christ. So my question, as we wrap this up, my question is, do you know Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Sam, I know him as the healer. I know him as my Savior. I know him as my sanctifier. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, truly, that's awesome. I'm not making light of that. But do you also know him as the highest authority, as the name above all other names, as the one who leads that charge into battle, as the one who victory is guaranteed? The Bible calls us co-heirs with Christ. So if you know Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, do you live with that confidence? Do you wake up and face your daily life knowing victory is ours? Knowing that he who is with us is greater than he who is in the world? Devil's not in charge of armies like that. Jesus is. We're soldiers for Jesus. So my question is, Who's got the throne in your life? Have you placed yourself on the throne? Have you placed your spouse on the throne? Have you placed your children on the throne? Your parents, your job? Revelation makes it incredibly clear. They wage war against the lamb and the lamb wins because he is king of kings and lord of lords. It doesn't matter who you've put on the throne in your own life. They're not going to stand up to Christ. I want us to be a church where we've given the throne to Christ entirely and we live in that confidence and reality every day. Let's pray. God, you alone are good. I really have nothing to add to that. You alone are good. You alone are the authority. You alone are the power. And yours alone is the name to be praised. So wherever we are right now, God, would whatever we're dealing with, whatever we've put on the throne, I ask that you teach us how to surrender it to you, that you teach us how to live in the light of you as King of kings and Lord of lords. We praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you. And we ask that you grow our hearts daily to live more like you. It's in Jesus' beautiful, matchless name we pray. Amen.